The effort to remove Mr. Berman is part of a clear and dangerous pattern of conduct that began when Mr. Barr took office and continues to this day. Mr. Barr's actions make clear that in his Department of Justice, the president's allies get special treatment. The president's enemies, real and imagined, are targeted for extra scrutiny, and the needs of the American people and the needs of justice are generally ignored. One of the greatest dangers to democracy is that people start believing that prosecutions are based on politics or based on who the defendant happens to know. And unfortunately, Bill Barr has perverted the Department of Justice. Jay Clayton should withdraw his name from consideration and refuse to be an accomplice to this scheme. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan, who, boy, it's been another week of tesseracts and quark holes and warm rays into red dwarves of reversed polarities wrapped in an enigma. Basically, it just sucks. Every state, except New York, it seems, did not bring the hammer down hard enough on the deadly pandemic that is now America's constant companion. And cases of coronavirus are steeply on the rise across the country. At the same time, the police, after their slight setback and moment of reflection, are licking their chops talking about lynching, as if it's, I was going to say the 1920s, but actually as if it's just what it is. 2020, when we have a world of Thorazine-deprived QAnon believers who belong in paper slippers and believe Trump is their savior, here to crush Black Lives Matter and Bill Gates and, of course, the great Satan. I'm with Jeff Charlotte that the 2020 race is very different from the 2016 one. This year, the Trumpite ralliers, what's left of them, aren't talking about the wall. They aren't even talking about the things that used to warm the cockles of their hearts, like the mass deportation of Muslims and Mexicans. You don't even hear from them the grab bag of right-wing shibboleths about infrastructure, healthcare, taxes they used to drone on about. They don't care about any of that. Not even the wall. The dregs of the Trumpites, the ones who've created ever more circumlocutious rationalizations for his corruption, lawlessness, ineffectiveness, idiocy, and cruelty— They're talking without apology about child molesters and satanic influencers. That's right. In some ways, it's good to have actual Satan back in the Trump picture, because I can sometimes follow all this QAnon stuff better with that shorthand, just Satan. When JFK Jr. back from the dead and something about Bill Gates and the vaccine isn't part of it. It's just Satan. Just Satan. Anyway, if you're having a harder time even than usual talking to the stout-hearted Trumpites in your midst, the ones who won't give them up for nothing, it's probably because they've gone full flat-earther and are speaking in tongues. But there are some people in our world who have to tune all this out and remind us there's still a U.S. Constitution and a rule of law, however bullet-riddled, and that it's possible to keep your head clear. Today, my guest is just that person. Jed Sugarman, star of stage and screen, professor at Fordham Law School. He's the author of The People's Courts and Forthcoming, Rise of Prosecutor Politicians, and The Imaginary Unitary Executive. Jed's going to put in perspective the recent earthquakes at the D.C. Circuit Court in the Southern District of New York, along with Bigfoot Bill Barr and the plight of former federal prosecutor Jeffrey Berman. Welcome to Trumpcast, Jed. Thanks for having me back, Virginia. Great to talk to you. This is the first time you've been back on the show since the the troubles, the new troubles, the extra bonus troubles. 
and it's really good to even behold you on Zoom. <laughs> so let's talk. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the my background picture on Twitter is a tabloid headline from The Crown, you know, the Queen Elizabeth story. And she's on the on a train in the beginning, and some things are going wrong with the uh, English royal family. And the headline is, what the hell is going on with this country? And I remember at the time on the show, I thought a lot of things were going wrong, What you know, in the 50s when she read that. And I now can't even remember what was going on in London in the 50s <laughs> on the show because I'm so overwhelmed by events of our own time. So anyway, what the hell is going yes. on in our country? Chapter 5 million, Michael Flynn. <laughs> Tell us about Flynn. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you're totally right about how we're living in a time of time relativity. I mean, it's like Einstein right now. Like, it feels like what is today, March 110th or something? I mean, it's <laughs> yes. And it, it both, it feels like it has been both a day and 10 years since the Ukraine impeachment, right? Literally, I think there, I think it is actually about we're in the exact equal point between the Senate trial and um, an election day. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, right? God, so, is that right? Something you, like that. You would keep track of something like that. I mean, the, the impeachment seems to be, as they say, of the microbes in this virus aerosolized right now in the sense that it, it's <laughs> yeah. like, it's like it, it's the cloud. It's sort of the air we're still breathing when it comes to, say, Michael Flynn. So the, as I always think about it, the, you know, this whole thing or the Russia investigation component of things that rolled into the Ukraine investigation began with those fateful words memorialized by James Comey. I hope you can see your way clear to letting Flynn go. And that was the very beginning. And it all comes back full circle. Yep. And where we're heading to now is the end game and perhaps talking about the pardon power, because, you know, just I, the way things are shaking out with Flynn, just to jump to that point, I think, I mean, I think the big picture point with Flynn is one, Barr has, uh, to the extent that people think that Barr is an evil genius, they're half right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that, Bill, yeah. that William Barr it certainly has, for, to the extent that people thought that this was the rule of law guy, he seems to neither have, a, have an understanding of rule or law. <laughs> and the way this is shaking out, both, will, you know, we can talk both about the um, Flynn and the Southern District, but Mm-hmm. Boy, you know, Barr really tried to be, you know, Trump thought he had a fixer. It turns out, you know, like, just like Roy Cohn, turns out I think Roy Cohn was a lot better of a lawyer <laughs> than William Barr because... Yeah, tell me. Right? Well, so, I mean, the idea that they would be able to drop these charges uh, on Flynn and game this out about the litigation, they, um, Barr, mis- Barr has misread a number of things here, but he misread what would happen if, they, if there was pushback. On dropping the charges because with this little time left, if I just take taking a step back of the merits of of what you know, Judge Sullivan, the, the federal trial judge, would be doing and what the D.C. Circuit did um, yesterday, I you know on Wednesday with Flynn's charges. Either way, there was going to be enough enough to litigate that the clock would run out on Barr being able to intervene in, in on behalf of Trump. And that still is going to leave Trump uh, at some point deciding whether he has to pardon people like Flynn and Stone after hopefully losing, right? But perhaps winning, right? There's still, he. Um, this is not going to uh, uh, get Trump off the hook. I mean, I guess if, if Trump wins, then there's time to fully litigate this. But if Trump loses and a Biden, DO, you know, Biden administration is coming in, just to walk through the litigation timeline, first of all, this was a three-judge panel. I mean, just to be clear to non-lawyers out there, what happens next is 
regardless of the merits. This was an extraordinary intervention by this three-judge panel, two, a two-to-one decision. Actually, can you back up and even yeah, explain sure, to sure. us, like, who is Michael Flynn? And then go <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, so, so the background is, right, first Flynn pleads guilty to lying to the FBI. And, and then after there is some effort to create new facts on the ground and create questions about the motives of the prosecution and to engineer these questions, right, they've selectively released some documents and the bar DOJ basically cherry picks and reframes in ways that are dramatically unfair and sort of, you know, to undermine the DOJ itself and undermine the FBI. And it's so remarkable, first of all, Virginia, that we have a, an attorney general who's made it his job to delegitimize the Department of Justice and the FBI and to, to basically weaponize and cherry pick documents to make these institutions that usually the attorney general struggles to make sure that they are seen as fair. He has weaponized and taken out of context a series of documents to systematically undermine the legitimacy of law enforcement in America. We just had um, Mattatiah Schwartz on the show, and he was talking about Barr's CIA time. And sometimes I think Barr, he's like the ultimate globalist. Like, I'm not sure that he, in the sense that he's like, you know, he answers only to the Vatican or to the Pope that he likes, who's locked under the floorboards or whatever his crazy Opus Dei superstitions are, and that he has his mind more on international matters as Flynn does. And for that reason the FBI is somehow beneath him. I think that's actually too generous. Ah, okay. Because I don't think that um, Barr is concerned with worldly with, with worldly or world historical judgment. I think he has his eye towards his own warped version of heavenly judgment. And I, yeah. I, you know, I, and I don't mean to be cavalier or I don't mean to be engaging in hyperbole. I'm just reading Barr's speeches. No, I know. Uh, I, I know. Uh, I, you know, I've written for Slate, I, I, and I think you know uh, about this. I've written yeah. about two of his speeches: one to Notre Dame, uh, yep. you know, quite specifically to Notre Dame on culture wars, and uh, talking about that that he is in service of um, more heavenly virtues. And there is a, and I'm using the word crusade in the appropriate context mm-hmm. of being of crusade. He is a crusader. And and then he also gave a just an, a dro- a jaw dropping speech to the Federal Society, mapping out his, uh, a totally warped historical a historical explanation for the imperial presidency. I also have had questions about his intelligence, and there's a certain um, self presentation in a bar type that has everyone sort of. It, like black box the idea that he's got to be intelligent. He's signaling intelligence that he's at, got that slouchy face and he always falls back into himself. Like he's just so confident he has it all worked out. And he says he, he but you know, if you just read it, the things that he says slide off the rails all the time, but there's some re- way. And people used to say this about Dick Cheney that he, uh, that he just has all kinds of things that code as kind of an Oxford Don to Americans. That's exactly right. You know? Part of it is is that he grew up in a in a cultural milieu of you know being at um, elite private schools in New York City with, mm-hmm. as the kid of the of the headmaster. Yes, Dalton, where his father hired Jeffrey Epstein, famously. Yes, <laughs> right. I mean, but there is his self presentation is so utterly confident that one would look at him and think this is a self possessed veteran of the Department of Justice who yeah. has been through so many of these of uh, these controversies and and has navigated through them. And if we might, you know, even if we think that Iran Contra and Panama and all of these gigantic scandals of yeah. the 1980s and 1990s, he just happened to be in the middle of them. 
but that experience and his self-presentation come across as Mr. Rule of Law. Yeah. And, and just watching these series of events shows that he's actually not a good lawyer. Okay, this is so interesting. Because one of the sub-themes of Trumpcast has been how a mob, uh, kind of how a, how a mafia needs to have kind of window dressers or whitewashers like Hope Hicks and Ivanka Trump. But it also needs a kind of, I mean, you're making it clear, it also Trump, someone like Trump needs a kind of sage figure who's like in the Rasputin slot or the whatever, maybe Dick Cheney slot so that everyone else can seem like a flake. But that person seems like they're sort of, they have some book learning. Yes. And you, it was pretty brave of you to start pointing out you know, he's really, he he lacks a, a, yeah, the fundamentals to work as the kind of jurist that he wants to be seen as. Yeah. All right. So let's get to Flynn because he's such a great case study in what in bars strange motivations and strange tactics at the same time. Yeah. So, okay. We know who Michael Flynn is. We know that he seems to have um, gone around Obama um, in the transition and it was right around Christmas, right? It was precisely in that transition. That's exactly yeah. right. It was right. It was the very end of December. I think it was December 28th, the 27th, 28th, where Flynn is, it, we now know that he was on the phone with Kislyak mm-hmm. and they were navigating, or maybe Kislyak and Lavrov, and to, and to negotiate um, a stand down when, when the Obama administration imposed sanctions yes. post-election. Yeah. Flynn, we've seen a little bit of the transcript and, and it's, you know, enti- what, is it a transcript or is it a summary? I, but, but that there was contact between Flynn and Russia. Um, mm-hmm. Some people will invoke something called the Logan Act as the criminalization of doing foreign policy when you're not yet in, in the administration. Mm-hmm. Let's set that aside. Uh, okay. the, right. The Logan Act is something that, you know, could be a distraction. There have, you know, there hasn't been a Logan Act prosecution, but, uh, uh, in, in I think in 200 years, but the point is that Flynn felt like he had to hide something, so he told the FBI that he had not spoken to the Russians and they, uh, or that he had not mentioned uh, uh, sanctions and, and and this policy when he spoke to the Russians. And they had a they had a transcript, they had, and they and it was clear that that Flynn had lied. Um, and so ultimately, as things played out, Flynn then, as the Mueller team turns the screws and shows Flynn that there are other indictments that could be possible. Uh, specifically, we know that there is a FARA, uh, so the, the foreign lobbying criminalization. You have to be able to, to indicate that you are lobbying for a foreign power. Flynn could have been indicted on, on FARA violations. And there are other questions about Flynn and his son and their criminal liability for a conspiracy to do something with a Turkish cleric that there may be more details there we don't know about. But for whatever reason, to minimize the criminal indictments that Flynn and his son may have faced, Flynn pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. Mm -hmm. And then it flashed forward all the way to this past um, uh, winter and spring, and then uh, in a combination of selectively releasing uh, information about uh, about that investigation and ginning up creating, manufacturing, really manufacturing the idea that there was something untoward about uh, indicating that they would drop the investigation, but then not filing papers to drop it and then asking Flynn questions. Somehow that process becomes, you know, in, in Barr's framing, illegitimate. There's really nothing. It's just that does not delegitimize the ability for the FBI to then ask questions and you still have to tell them the truth. Yeah. So what was Flynn hiding? Why was he hiding it? So that then leads up to the DOJ essentially conspiring with Flynn to then drop these charges and for Flynn to, to withdraw his guilty plea. 
that move, yeah. what I'm saying here is, what I think, so let me identify why this is bad lawyering. I think what Barr was doing was intervening for the DOJ on behalf of Trump to save Trump the political costs of a pardon, to just mm-hmm. drop the charges and, and then make sure to keep Flynn happy and, and, and try and do damage control so that Flynn wouldn't, you know, given that he was heading towards sentencing, the Trump administration uh, would want to make sure that he was off the hook and felt no pressure to to cooperate. And also it's the beginning of the Russia investigation, you know, one of the beginnings. And so in Barr's in Barr's infinite devotion to discrediting the Russia investigation and solidifying his breakup with with Robert Mueller and with the rule of law, um, he may be eager to say, and look, from the very beginning, the FBI was out to get poor General Flynn. That's it. That's right. Yeah. And then also, if he wants a unitary executive, he's got a vested interest in getting getting Trump reelected. So if it can help him politically, that's a that's a bonus. That's right. That's right. So it was to delegitimize the Russia investigation, although query how much does, you know, pulling these moves on behalf of Flynn, it it delegitimizes it to people who are already, you know, the the always Trumper base. And and I don't know. I don't know for for whom who is going to vote yeah. On the idea that, oh, yeah, the DOJ dropped charges against Flynn. So, yes, this this now convinces me that there was that the, that Trump d- wasn't misusing government power <laughs> to protect his own people. It was only validates. I mean, really, it's sort of the lenses we have. Right. Um, but 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 no moderate voter, no, in, no independent is going to change. So but the key thing was that um, this is what I'm saying about why I think Barr showed that he is not a very astute lawyer. It is clear that um, that Judge Sullivan still, once Flynn pleaded guilty, that shifted the the playing field from this being in the hands of prosecutors entirely to then being in the hands of the court. And we can I, there, we can go into the weeds. I don't think it's worthwhile going into all of the legal details about whether a guilty plea means that a court has open has a tremendous amount of discretion to sentence regardless of what prosecutors do or whether a judge has to defer to prosecutors. But either way, there's going to be a foreseeable litigation process where a judge like Sullivan, who's already shown the world that he finds uh, what Flynn has done, I think Sullivan at some point even invoked the word treason, which was about Flynn, which was, first of all, incorrect legally. There, it, you can't accuse Flynn of treason for lots of reasons. But if you're reading tea leaves as a lawyer, you have to see that Sullivan is certainly not sympathetic to Flynn or to moves to, to try and protect Flynn. So it was both a misreading of criminal procedure, a misreading of jurisdiction, and a misreading of the room to think that he could walk in. And, and so in some ways, what was, was Barr just wanting to flex his muscles with bluster? Was, or, you know, I think on some level, um, I think he just made a giant legal mistake. And it's just a double whammy. He, what they're now facing, so just let me, Virginia, let me just explain why I don't think the merits even need to all need to be played out because yeah. the next step is, and this is another way that 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 Barr misread the room. This panel was two Republican appointees and one Democratic appointee. Of the two Republican appointees, one was perceived as a sort of rule of law uh, conservative, not a moderate, but but a George H. W. Bush appointee that many people had res- had respect for. I, I, I choose the, that word "had" carefully. Because the, the opinion that and, and Judge Rao was a Trump opi- Trump appointee, who many people had regarded as you know very smart and someone who also had a lot of um, ambition to be a potential Supreme Court uh, appointment. This opinion is so outrageous 
that it, I think it indicates that not only you know, everything Trump touches dies, isn't that I, yeah, you, Rick, Wilson's, you know, right? Rick Wilson's book? I mean, the, the D.C. Circuit conservatives are shredding and, and scorching their own credibility here. It's hard to look at Henderson the same way now that she signed on to Judge Rao's opinion. But, but the point is, I mean, because it was so extraordinary to reach out on mandamus, the legal, illegal writ term, yeah, what what is that? I've, I see it only in your Twitter feed. First time I've ever seen the word mandamus. So if I can put this simply, I mean, the basic idea is that Sullivan could be overreaching. But the bottom line is you have to let the district court uh, go through its process. And then the, the remedy is Sullivan can make his ruling and then you appeal to the D.C. Circuit. Mm-hmm. And instead, because I think at some point Barr realized that the timeline was shot, they then Barr and the... Uh, Flynn and Flynn also, you know, wanted to rush past what Sullivan was doing, which was taking a hard look at this prosecution move. Mm-hmm. And they, they, instead of waiting to appeal a decision by Sullivan, they circumvented Sullivan after he appointed an amicus to help him investigate former mm-hmm. Judge Gleason. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That, right. Gleason then filed this report. Um, now, this is another topic, but this is actually an embarrassment on both sides. Uh, J- former Judge Gleason's report, I thought, was was an embarrassment as well, uh, mm-hmm. be- because I think everyone's wearing these partisan blinders these days. Mm-hmm. And Judge Gleason wound up writing a report that su- that suggested that withdrawing a guilty plea can be used as a perjury charge. That if you plead guilty mm-hmm. and then you decide and then you change your uh, mind on your guilty plea, yeah. then either you were lying then or you're lying now. Right. It amounts to the same thing. I'm oversimplifying this, but let me just say that there is a, an enormous legal problem and a moral problem, I think, for saying that any time a person withdraws a guilty plea, it, it then puts them at jeopardy of, of a perjury claim just for withdrawing the guilty plea, because it means that there's an inconsistency in what they said to the court. There are all kinds of reasons to withdraw a guilty plea that you want to contest that maybe you had some question about how the strong how strong the evidence was you come up with new evidence you find a new witness and suddenly your ability to say well i thought there was reasonable doubt i thought that there you know was there was proof beyond a reasonable doubt but now i want to actually vindicate my rights in court i want my day in court mm-hmm. for judge gleason uh, against flynn to indicate that that could be a perjury charge is frankly virginia outrageous by the left outrageous so the Trump era is, you know, everything Trump touches dies. Yeah. Frankly, it's happening to some liberals too, uh, um, be, right? I mean, that's what's discouraging here is, is people on both sides are now returning to these tribal blinders and seeing the world as red and blue as opposed to right and wrong. Yeah. Very not fine people on both sides is what I'm well, hearing. I just, I think people are so, there is such a degree of outrage on both sides that people are not thinking with their full capacity and thinking independently. And it doesn't say great things about Judge Sullivan either, that when he got Gleason's report, he had a duty because he invited Gleason to look at perjury. And I thought, there's no way that Judge Sullivan means to look at perjury for the changing guilty plea. He might be looking at perjury for some part of the allocution. Allocution is where a a defendant um, tells the court, not just a guilty plea, but allocutes and and, uh, concedes facts as part of the plea. Got it. How this makes sense is that Sullivan wanted to see if when Gleason looked at the facts that maybe Flynn lied to the court about protecting Pence. You know, there is significant conjecture, reasonable conjecture that when Flynn lied to the FBI, he also was lying about other people's culpability. And that would be the basis of perjury. If he Mm -hmm. if he said, well, if he said something like 
Pence didn't know anything about this, or um, I lied to Pence, but he actually told Pence, or he did Trump or Pence's bidding and talking to Russia, but lied about that. That's a perjury. That would be perjury. You thought the Gleason investigation might be for Sullivan turning up something of merit or of use like yes. that. I thought there was a mini Mueller. I thought I thought there was mm. possible that what Sullivan was doing was appointing Gleason to do a little bit more digging mm-hmm. in a in sort of a, a, a like a Mueller might have done. So there's kind of an independent prosecutor that was through the back that, and I thought this was wicked jujitsu. Yeah. God. Okay. I know you like coming at things a slant like I do. So yeah. I saw the big short again last night. My son wanted to see it. I hadn't seen it in a long time about the, the 2008 crash. And you maybe remember that there's a moment in it. Um, I had actually forgotten, but where all the kind of savants who've known that the, who've shorted the market, they see the subprime crisis coming, start saying to themselves, the mortgages are all junk. There are all these defaults, but the bonds aren't falling. The bonds aren't collapsing. Yeah, right, you know, these right, kind of right. aggregate bonds. And one of them, the Steve Carell character, shows up at Standard and Poor's to a small office and says to someone who seems to be the person that handles all the ratings for stocks, and he says, why aren't these collapsing when you have all this de- these defaults? Why are these still triple A's? Yep. And she says, well, you know, if they um, they come to us for the rating they want, and if they don't get the rating they want, they'll go to someone else for the rating they want. And I mean, it's just so simple, and it's just so much fraud and corruption. And for some reason, and you hear them, feel them hitting a wall, which is like reality suggests that, now to move back to the subject at hand, Flynn was involved in some very sketchy stuff with Russia and Turkey and that he broke bad in the worst way, probably one of the worst ways of an American high-ranked military officer. And yet, at these like penny-ante levels, he still got a triple-A rating from from Barr. It's like, the thing is not collapsing. The thing is, right. It's it's like Stone, when Barr is going to triple A rates, Roger Stone and Michael Flynn, who he should have been willing to cut loose and short and strongly short. And when he's sticking by it, that is part of the reason, you know, that that I I mean, I I sympathize with Sullivan. Part of the reason you're going insane is that silent scream feeling of the level of fraudulence and corruption is so high here that I almost need to just, you know, my head's going to explode. So, so I love it. I, uh, the big short is, is one of, is, a, it's is so, almost it's, like must, must watching. Yes. So, so three points about this. One is the idea that markets are being propped up. We are living in a time where wall street, I mean, somehow we've designed a, uh, a stimulus system that has basically propped up wall street while there is, we're about to see the end of small business support and what that is going to do to employment. If when the PPP runs out in a, in like six days, I mean, we, right. So we don't, so talking about the big short, we're all about to come up short. If yeah. They're, right. Given, given how the, sti- and, and let's say Virginia, both parties messed up the stimulus package. I mean, yeah. like, so, so yeah. from I, what, what I followed from insiders is that they just plugged and played. They just took the template from a completely different economic circumstance, the 2008 crash, a fundamentally different right. economic situation, but because they had to move fast, and because they're actually not, we talk about you know, some people who are perceived to be good lawyers and aren't, no one thinks that Congress is good at e- economics, right? Yep. But they really didn't do any, you know, they just, they just took the old template and, from a different 2008 crash and just propped up Wall Street. 
And, and so, so Ed subbed out, did a did a, a search and replaced for you know exactly. AIG and Jamie Dimon and put and, in the American Worker, um, and, or not and, even and the that, American Worker. Probably put Starbucks in. That's right. And to um, connect some other dots, Virginia, this comes back to the the unitary executive theory, please, and and Bill Barr because the Democrats t- totally failed to acknowledge that there was a difference between the Bush administration on good. Uh, despite its incompetence in many ways, to at least say, look, in good faith, they're going to try and use the stimulus and TARP in 2008, and then going into whoever won the election in 2009, McCain or Obama, they would at least in good faith try and manage the stimulus. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas what the Democrats did when they agreed to this this stimulus package this time around, they were hoodwinked and self-hoodwinked to putting in no teeth in oversight. I think there was a story that came out today. I just saw the headline, but it didn't surprise me today. The New York Times says that $1.4 billion of the payments went to dead people. And that is going to be nothing compared to the fact that, that Secretary of the Treasury Mnuchin used the word, when the inspectors general want to see where the money has gone to businesses, and they said that there's this duty for inspectors general to see it. Uh, they all they did was let it was trust the executive branch. And what have we seen since the stimulus package has, has, has passed? And they said the inspectors general will be our guardians of the mm-hmm. stimulus oh, package. Fired. Shocking. Yeah. Who, who yeah. Virginia, who could possibly have foreseen the fact that Trump would stonewall the inspectors general? He told us when he signed mm-hmm. it. Yes. He told us when he signed the stimulus package. I regard this as a, a, an impediment on the unitary executive theory. Not that he knows what that means, but, you know, and Steve Mnuchin says that the information about where the money has gone is the proprietary property of the treasury. What the word proprietary means, I know you know this, but just to be clear, the, something proprietary is, means someone owns the property. The idea, the, 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 the right. chutzpah, the chutzpah of Mnuchin to say, we own the information and you can't have it is such a, a thumb in the face thumb yeah. in the, at the idea of oversight. So, so let me come back a second to this idea that, I Please. mean, this Virginia is the, is one of the big myths of our time Okay, is the construction of unitary executive idea. And, and, you know, just to connect the dots here from Flynn and that case, again, just what I was saying before is, you know, the time is going to run out on litigation the, the, another reason why Barr is a bad lawyer is that um, regardless of, uh, of, whether, of what panel he got and, and, uh, and winning the panel, the D.C. Circuit is seven to five Democratic appointees. And there's something that the D.C. Circuit can do. It can call for an in-bank sua sponte. Right, let me just translate that. That just means that the D.C. Circuit can, regardless of which random panel got it as a, as a panel of three, you don't need Judge Sullivan, the trial judge, to ask for an appeal one of these DC circuit judges on their own, meaning sua sponte means on their own, can request in bank, meaning the entire circuit to, to hear it. And of those 12 judges, seven are Democrats. And I would even say there are probably some more moderate Republicans in that mix who would not sign on to this embarrassment of Judge Rao's opinion. So, so all of that plays out to run out the clock. Uh, and that means that we're back to a pardon. So that was one issue. But the other thing that Barr did that was part of the unitary executive theory was, was removing the U.S. Attorney of the Southern District. And you know, just in very briefly, um, what I would say is that um, Barr, you know, it, it, it was, it, there's a lot to see in the timeline here that looked like panic. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, that, in that, you know, why did this happen now in a way that was so mishandled that there was 
Um, the, the, the story kept changing, who they were trying to put in place instead mm-hmm. of Berman. They even botched whether or not Berman was going to step down. What happened? So Virginia, what we know is that um, Barr met with Berman in New York City on uh, last Friday. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and we don't know exactly what they talked about, but somehow Barr left with urgency Regardless of what, Ber- what, what Berman intended to do, we now know that Berman had no intention of stepping down. Mm-hmm. But Barr said, he's resigned. And Berman says, no. And in fact, not only am I not resigning, our, our Southern District investigations, our ongoing investigations will continue with our office. Berman sent a pretty big signal that this was not just about you know, um, moving on to you know, taking a vacation over the summer, but he put on the table that this was about investigations. And then we see, uh, we see a shifting set of explanations, um, a story that, you know, Barr had lined up the, uh, the U.S. attorney from New Jersey, uh, Carpenito, and his office to take over and telling Carpenito, oh, yeah, well, I'm, Barr says I'm, giving, I'm offering you this job because Berman's stepping down already. That turned out to be false. And then we get um, a story about the SEC commissioner taking the job. Totally ridiculous story. Anyway, the point is, all of these explanations are, you know, laughable. I mean, they don't, they, they don't make any sense. And even if they did make sense, the statutes don't look like they allow Trump to appoint a crony. What was all this about? Mm-hmm. I, 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 what I'm, I just want to say this about the, about this connects all the way back to Jim Comey. Yep. When Jim Comey said, you know, issued that letter on November 1st about um, 2016 about the Hillary Clinton emails, mm-hmm. right? Remember this issue uh, about the, you know... Oh, oh do I remember? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming up on the PTSD month. So yes. just be careful because there's a lot of trigger possibilities in our listeners and me. Totally. <laughs> but, so why, but what was, one of the, what was one of the reasons why people were so shocked at what Comey had done? He, because he did, he, there was a norm against reopening investigations or announcing or indicting anyone in a window of time before an election. Yep. And here's what I'm suggesting, Virginia. I think that there either was something that the Southern District of New York was was about to do, and and they knew because the Southern District knows that the window is about to close. If they don't open announce an investigation or indict between now and August first ish, the they can't do anything, you know, until after the election. So while we were talking, I don't know if you got a, got this alert, but while we were talking, I, there's a story in the Washington Post. Trump's pick for Manhattan U.S. attorney, so replacing Berman, has just said he would recuse from probes of the president's associates. It was that Carpenito or was that Clayton? That's Clayton. That's Clayton. So can we just say something about Clayton? I mean, the, this Please. is so so. The, so the thing, and this was our good friend Jonathan Turley was was spreading this propaganda, oh, yeah. right? Right. So the, but you know, the idea that what tells us that this was deeply corrupt is that every explanation that the Trump, that the insider, that Trump, the Trumpers gave for this move, what, each one was more nonsensical than the, mm-hmm. than the one before it. And the idea that the, the the explanation they needed to find a job for Clayton in New York, like guys, <laughs> there are lots I, of jobs in New York, yeah. but that he was going to be giving. He didn't need a new job. Clayton is the chairman of this SEC, an enormously powerful and prestigious job. Slightly weakened if the big short is to be trusted. Oh, that's um, also but true. Yes. That's also but yes, true. it's it's an it's enormously powerful job because he cannot oversee uh, security. But he had two years. He had a lot of time left if he wanted it to stay yep. in that job. Mm-hmm. And, and the U.S. attorney job runs out when an administration runs out. And so 
it doesn't, it just, it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And especially, you know, and now the backfiring is that you can't just install someone when the whole point of these statutes is to protect the U.S. attorney's offices Mm -hmm. from a president appointing his own crony into a U.S. attorney's office. I mean, this is, you know, obviously Preet Bharara, you know how every time something happens, like during the impeachment, you know, Monica Lewinsky will post something cryptic and witty when it's in her bailiwick. And I think Preet did the same thing when these moves were made on Berman. And this just keeps happening with no explanation. We know there's Occam's razor here. We know what they're trying to do. We know, you know, we know we have some idea of who's under investigation. And as you say, Berman's statement was sort of a a masterpiece of two uh, two paragraphs without a transition. You know, yeah, that we're like, yeah. I didn't actually resign and, uh, you know, I'll be staying on unless I'm fired. And then and these investigations are ongoing. <laughs> so, you know, right. it's just what we learned from Pre Barara there. You know, as, as you say, Barr is acting like a failed Roy Cohn. I mean, yes. he got right. there must have been a way for. <sighs> what would Cohn have done? I mean, the rest he probably would have kneecapped someone. I mean, there's, there must have been a way to stymie this investigation without further sullying his reputation, making Trump look even worse. Or to know when your intervention did enough and you you, you may be overplaying your hand. It's also, if they're, if they're litigating or, you know, trying to replay their unusual and suspicious uh, victory of 2016 and worried about a Comey-like announcement of emails or whatever, something that, you know, before August or even some October surprise, they are <laughs> totally ignoring the fact that Trump is losing another way He's losing on his own terms. That, that's right. That's right. I mean, just keep in mind that I, you know, how much Barr did to successfully uh, delay focus on the Mueller report. True. And, and by by taking there, it was possible that things could have been a, rolled out a little differently had the Mueller report gone out the way that Mueller and his team intended it. And Barr, what would Roy Cohn have done? Roy Cohn would have recognized how successfully he both served his boss mm. with that, and then still preserved his own credibility. Mm. And this is the difference between Roy Cohn, good lawyer, and and William Barr, deranged priest or something. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I'm trying to understand exactly what Barr thinks he's doing because, and, and, and so, so, but let me, let me come back to this point about this and, and talking about theology and something called the unitary executive theory, because many of us a shorthand for it, we call it the Unitarians. And so just the, the, oh, the, I, I like the irony, right? The irony <laughs> of, of, of Bill Barr, Opus Dei Catholic. Yeah, with right, a, being a Unitarian. I like being, it. The being least, a Unitarian, right? It's, the, the, pretty much the least religious, yeah, the least uh, esoteric, the most groovy. The, the, the most you pluralistic. Know, barely you know, yes. believe in God. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's a, a that's a wonderful theological irony. And you You're and I right. love, love talking about you know, <laughs> the, theology together. Virginia. Yes, yes, we do. <laughs> so here's the thing about this history is that when you take a step back, it's the thread that underlies all of this. It's, it's part of why the Federal Society ha- has been so supportive of Trump. It's, you know, do we think that it's all about Roe v. Wade, you know, talking about religion again? It's not. It's also this theological commitment to presidential power. Mm-hmm. Which is a which is a new religion of the last fifty years. I mean, really, it's it's when when you look around at the Republican Party um, politically, where did the unitary executive come from? It's it really starts to take off. I did an engram of on Google about the phrase unitary executive and what the oh, theory. Yeah. So it really stems from um, with a little bit of hits here and there in the twentieth century. It takes off around nineteen eighty 
and the Reagan revolution. And if you were a Republican in the, in the 1970s and 80s, you look around and you say, look, the Democrats have hel- held the House since the New Deal, more or less, except for like this little blip, and I think in the 50s. And, they, and the Democrats have held the Senate and, uh, and uh, up until that time, basically. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the courts and you see how from you know, the Warren Court and, and you have all these elites. And then you look at the, at the, at the um, New Deal state. And even when you have Republican presidents, it's these elite deep, basically, this is the idea of the deep state. The deep mm-hmm. state happens. The idea is, is that these overeducated experts and elite liberals, whether they're appointed by Democrats and Republicans, they keep coming up new, as new dealers. And, mm-hmm. the old, and, and, and there's this deep state professional bureaucracy that, and the only way to break through it is by, by having the people, the, mm-hmm. the country versus court, right? The, the country of the United States um, uh, electing the president against the court, right? The country versus court party to go back and to the legislature and the legislature, and, which you'd think would, I mean, as you say, when the, the noticing that it's Congress right. and, and that's that, right. Yeah. But, so, but, but, what, but if you yeah. empower the president, right. you don't, you don't have to worry about whether the house is, you know, which, mm-hmm. you know, but the, the, the notion was in the 1980s that it's that we, that the real danger was the deep state expertise bureaucracy mm-hmm. uh, and and the new deal and the new deal state the new deal regulatory state and the mm-hmm. only way to break through it is to give the president more power to control override and fire people in the executive branch mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and they and they had to construct a mythology out of the founding that that not only does it uh, not stick with what we, the big picture of what we know of the founding era about being anti-monarchic. I mean, basically the, the vision is the founders chose one president because they wanted a more royal model. And that is so out of step with what we know of the founding era and its deep skepticism of, of monarchic power, even if they chose one executive. Mm-hmm. But just to say a little bit more about this, yeah. when you read, so essentially the constitution says very little about presidential power. Um, and, and it takes a lot, uh, and because it doesn't establish, it doesn't mention the removal power, it doesn't mention firing, and it doesn't mention a lot other than the veto and pardons. And it turns out that when you actually do what the originalists tell us to do, which is to look at the convention and to look at the, at the ratification debates, mm-hmm. like you know Hamilton and Madison, mm-hmm. those writings cut against their interpretation of unchecked presidential power mm-hmm. again and again they talk about the importance of that that the uh, that the constitution creates limited powers limited not just on congress but limited sets of powers on the president it, it they use language this is research we've done on this language of faithful execution that the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed the president gives an oath to faithfully execute the office that was legal language um that the two authors ethan lieb and andrew kent and i found that history was meant to limit presidential power. Hmm. Tell me why, because that's also very interesting because it goes to the word executive, but also that that, that fidelity, that faithfulness is a position of, of servitude, of once again, of service of the president and to, to make sure that, yeah, the, 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 make sure the will of the people or the, the way that that's manifest in, in legislation is, is faithfully executed. It does not sound like an authoritarian move to me. So that's exactly right. It's small R Republican. Hmm. I mean, the, so, so one example is the oath. If what, so the oath of faithful execution was used in English statutes for hundreds of years 
but only for mid-level or high-level executive officers under the king. Mm-hmm. When you stepped oh, into an office yeah. that was a mid-level or, or mid-level or low-level or high-level ministerial office, you took an oath of faithful execution. The kings, Virginia, this is really interesting. The founders knew what the coronation oath was for kings. They did not borrow the coronation oath language. They borrowed for the for the it's the only oath they spelled out. They mm. they didn't spell, but the only oath they spelled out was the was the president's oath. And they chose the language from mid-level executive officers who serve under the king. Not why? Because in a in a, in a democracy, in a republic, the people are sovereign, not not the president. It's popular sovereignty. And so faithful execution means serving in good faith the people, not the people serving the president. And that is why fundamentally the unitary executive model that borrows on monarchy is anti-originalist. It is frankly ahistorical and a modernist revival of monarchy rather than being true to the founding. So, but this is the other thing, Virginia, which is interesting is that if you're an originalist, you say, go back and read the convention and go back and read the ratification debates. All of that cuts against the unitary executive. But what do they have to turn to? They manufactured a story out of the first Congress. And it turns out, I started digging into the story. And it's- Yeah, it's, this it's, is amazing, so, your discoveries here. By the way, this is why talking to you is so satisfying. Because, <laughs> you know, it's you're a historian and the fantastic legal mind. So oh, oh, anyway, oh, I'm just, Virginia, I'm just, I, I'm just, just uh, taking it in. And I love talking to you because you'll tie it together with so many other things going on in the world, like, you know, religion and the big short. So I would tell you, sell early on the unitary executive. Because <laughs> okay. I, okay. I'm putting in my swaps re- while well, we, I've got it on my phone on E-Trade. Put a short on the unitary executive because breaking news, there was a diary that all of when all these all these originalists say go and read the original sources there was a diary and I, virginia i don't mean a diary that i somehow you know escaped the 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 covid-19 shutdown and i sneaked into the library of congress yeah. this has been a diary that was published 100 years ago and it's and 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 none of the unitary executive scholars looked at it and this diary by a senator basically tells us that the unitary story, that what happened is that Congress passed statutes to imply that the president has this power to remove officers as part of this unitary power, mm-hmm. because the Constitution tells us that. Right? That, was, that was this big myth. A senator's diary tells us that the senators, because you know, the Senate was closed at the time, so there was no publicized. This is 1789, right? Is that the, that's the year of the Constitutional Convention. That, uh, that's the, no, that's the first Congress. The first so, Congress, so, first Congress. So 1787, the, uh, the convention tells us very little bit about, very little about presidential power. Certainly nothing that goes this far tells us more that there are limits on it. The debate, Madison says something like, you can't interpret presidential power to be beyond the powers we've identified. Right? He says it in Latin, he uses a Latin phrase, ex terminus, but don't worry about that. Okay. Um, then, the, then Hamilton and Madison in the Federalist Papers tell us the same story, that Congress has the power over things like removal, okay? Mm-hmm. The, the Federalist Papers are the Bible of the originalists, and they tell us the opposite of what they say. But the smoking gun is, right, they then say, well, this was all not worked out, but the first Congress, and they finally met, you know, they passed the Constitution, they, they elect Washington, um, they show up in Congress in, in March of 1789. They have this amazingly deep debate about presidential power. And they all agree, or they, they resolve this debate as saying the Constitution means presidents have this unitary power to fire people like Berman or fire people like the, the, the chairman of the Fed. 
And not only does the debate not say what they say it says, okay? The debate does not say this. Only one third of the members of the House line up with this theory. And, and just to do a little math, Virginia, one third is less than half, okay? Okay, yeah. but here's the diary. The diary then tells us that the, that the senators who pushed the statute through, the statute that created presidential removal, they denied that it had this meaning. And so what happens is if I'm just urging the, the, the lawyers who, out, who are out there who care about this is just, you know, you can, I, I go into the detail in these two drafts that I have up on my SSRN page. But the, we, but we the, can put the link in, uh, put the links for, in for those people who like to get Talmudic on all this. Yes, um, we'll put the link in the show notes um, that that also that goes through this letter and Jed's argument and diary. But but let me tie this together. Uh, diary, sorry, yeah, yeah. The, the, the diary, the senator's diary says that the senators who were pushing this big bill through that was going to you know basically clarify this constitutional power. The senators on the floor say, no, no, don't think that they denied it. They denied it because they strategically, they designed the, the, the language of these statutes to be ambiguous, not to be clear, because they didn't have the votes, right? The, just to quote mm-hmm. the musical Hamilton, the, uh, you don't have the votes, uh-uh, uh-uh, you don't have the votes. Right. They didn't have the votes. And so why does this matter? This debate shapes the Supreme Court decisions that are coming down in the next week or the next few weeks about the president's power to fire uh, members of independent agencies, right? This, the, 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 you know, the war against the deep state, mm-hmm. but it also is used, these, these line of cases are used for the president's ability to ignore congressional subpoenas for tax returns. And that's, and that's the big game. That's the big game is, is to, is the, is the Trump and the federal society and bar have this bargain to keep pushing judges through that will create and solidify an imperial presidency despite the fact that it contradicts all of the originalist methodology that we've been told is the bedrock principles of the originalist methodology. Jed is a polymath, a historian and legal scholar, professor of law at Fordham. Thank you very much for being back here. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Virginia. It's always a great conversation. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? Fill out your comment cards on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And don't stop there. Subscribe to Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and sign up. Somebody just did the numbers for me. It's less than $3 a month for the first year. That's $35. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. And you can feel good about that. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.